0: so glad you've tuned in. Welcome to The Foxed Page, where we dive deep into the very best of books. You'll end up with a deeper understanding of the text at hand, all while learning to read everything a little better. I'm Kimberly Ford, best-selling author, one-time professor at Berkeley, editor, and PhD in Spanish and French literature. And for those of you out there who are not actually trafficking in rare books, The Foxed Page might be something of a mystery. Foxing is just those little tiny brown spots that you see uh, on the pages of very old, beloved books. Today, we are going to be talking about Ellen Hildebrand's Summer of 69. So this is not in fact an old beloved book, uh, but it is about a very beloved year. I was born in fact, in 1969. So I have a very, um, you know, I have a deep fondness for the year. And I really, really enjoyed uh, this this sort of uh, sojourn into the year of my birth. Um, For those of you who who know me and who have been listening to these lectures for a long time, you'll know that I have a little uh, reservation about when it comes to bestsellers but a couple of summers ago, I read my first Ellen Hildebrand, and I tell you what, she is a talented woman. And I really found these books so engrossing. I started recommending them to people. Uh, and then if you saw it, last year the New York Times did a big thing and uh, you know talked all about how engaging and how engrossing and, and what a gigantic following she has. And uh, little did I know that she was in fact uh, known as the queen of the beach read so this is a not only a bestseller; it is in fact a number one New York Times bestseller, which again for me is usually not that much of a selling point. But um, once I dove in, I realized that this uh, sort of the the uh, frothy, really delectable kind of fun parts about the book are also bolstered by some really really good kind of literary merit. So. The lecture today will be delivered in three chunks as always. In the first part, we will be talking about why read the book. We'll do a very quick bio of Ellen Hildebrand, and then we will dive in to the prose and talk a bit about historical fiction. In the second chunk, we'll be talking about narrative voice, plot. We're gonna talk about the range that she has, which is really impressive, and uh, a bit about music and the intertexts in in the course of the novel. In the last chunk, we'll be talking about figurative language, uh, a couple of faults that I have found. Uh, I think it's probably not surprising that not every single word and every turn of phrase um, was, was not, uh, you know, not maybe quite up to snuff in terms of what we usually expect here at the Fox page with our um, literary favorites. But uh, I'm, I'm gonna just kind of briefly give you a few of those. Then we're gonna talk about the arcs of the different characters, which is it's a very satisfying uh, element of all prose. And I think she does a very, very good job of, of arcs that are very well-earned and interesting. Uh, some of them maybe seem a little more predictable than others, but even those are very satisfying. And then as always, we will close the third section with a discussion of the close of the novel. Okay, so we're gonna dive right in. Why am I having you read a beach read? Or why am I suggesting that you read a beach read? Partially, I mean, honestly, I don't think I would, except that Ilhan Hildebrand really does seem to combine both you know, some real literary chops together with this kind of delectable setting and this real escapism that I think is at the, at the heart of the idea of a beach read. It's also the beginning of summer. Not sure when you're listening to this, but if you're listening to it, uh, it's June 6th today. So um, I'm I'm heading into the summer, although weirdly here in California, it's like raining today, which if you're from another part of the country or if you've been here, it seems like it's been raining forever, but it's a little odd to have it be raining today. It was beautiful yesterday. Um, Speaking of California, I actually have spent some time on Nantucket. My husband's family is from Massachusetts and I've spent quite a bit of time actually on Nantucket with his family. And um, the reason I'm wearing this black outfit, if, you, if you're if you at the YouTube channel, if you're looking at the video right now, I'm wearing black because whenever I'm in Nantucket, I, I go the opposite direction of the Lily Pulitzer patio dress and everything I wear is, is black. I also, if you are watching the YouTube uh, channel right now, you will note that I am sitting in front of a photo that is the right era. So this is sort of 1969 that we're talking about here. Uh, And yet this is a picture of state line. It's between Nevada and California. My mother was from Nevada. Uh, I am from California, so I, I'm having to push against this idea of the beach read by, by offering up those of you who are watching the video, an image of uh, California, Lake Tahoe. And um, this, this is the black outfit that I, uh, use sort of my uniform whenever I am in Nantucket with my in-laws. When we talk about beach reads, often the, the sort of thrust is that there's a real focus on plot. And there's a real focus on setting, which is something that that both of those elements are really, really well executed by Ellen Hildebrand. Um, She also, again, this notion of these very satisfying arcs, she does a very good job with that. What I argue is a little different in her work uh, versus some of the more kind of fluffy beach reads, is that there's really a very large amount of character development. And there is this this range that we're gonna get into later, but she has this beautiful ability to really develop all of these different characters and their story arcs in a way that ends up being very satisfying. We're gonna talk for a minute about Ellen Hildebrand's biography very briefly. She also was born in 1969. She was born uh, about a month before I was. She and her twin brother were born in Boston. She then went on to live in Pennsylvania. She was a fellow at Iowa at the workshops there, which, for anyone who knows anything about these writers' colonies and these writer workshops, the Iowa um, work, writers' workshop is, is sort of the very, very uh, best in terms of prose quality. So when I did hear that, I thought, well, this is—it's—it's it's clear to me that she really does, in fact, have a lot of of literary, um, you know, know-how. She was a graduate of Johns Hopkins University. Which also has a really good writing program, and then uh, it, after having grown up in Pennsylvania, her dad died when she was 16 in a plane crash, which is interesting. I have not read enough of her books to know whether or not there is any real sort of processing of that, or if, or if you know how much of a shadow that is sort of cast by this tragedy of her dad dying when she was a teenager. Uh, but but that is a salient part of her biography. In 1995, she married a guy named Chip. Cunningham, Chip Cunningham sounds like someone to me who maybe spent some summers himself on Nantucket. In 2015, they divorced, they have three children, and Ellen Hildebrand is very proud of she's written 23 novels. And on her on the little the, the, the little sort of bio of her, it says that she's written 23 novels and raised three children. So I like that. I like the idea of her novels as being sort of equally in importance, you know, that these are the things that she has created. And that she has brought out into the world the 23 books and her three children. Again, New York Magazine calls her the queen of the beach read, and she is consistently right at the top of the of the New York Times bestseller. She she is really kind of churning out a book a summer. And um, I actually was in a bookstore not that long ago in Nantucket, and there was a big wall of her books. And two different people came in and and got you know, the the latest. Everybody was very excited about buying the latest actually on the island where everything is um, is signed by her. Okay, now we're gonna dive into the book itself. So I um so the the title of the book, we're gonna take a quick look at the cover art and the title. The cover art, I you know, I find this just kind of appealing. They're on the inside of the flap, at least of my copy, Uh, You can see a lot of the other uh, titles, I mean, a lot of the other covers and they all are pretty consistent, which when you are someone like Ellen Hildebrand, you want them to be consistent and you want them to be highly identifiable. Also, you will note that um, I think probably right from the start, because she was successful, you know, really early in her career. Um, the the name, the name takes precedent over the title, which is really, um, this it's, you know, a sign essentially that you have made it, that someone they'll come in and say, I want to buy the latest Hildebrand, not I'm looking for the summer of 69. So the title of these books, um, you know, they seem a little cliche, a little kind of twee, but also again, this is maybe what you would expect. And she certainly delivers more than the title promises. My impression of the summer of '69 is is uh, that maybe we're referring to the song here, but that song is a song from 1984 by uh, by Brian Adams. So if you're if you're thinking about the one, you know, where he got his first six string and all of that stuff, um, that came well after the summer of '69. Maybe there's a song. I, you know, I did a little research on this, and nothing popped right up. It wasn't like this was sung by Credence or something. Uh, but but I I think it's also, I, I think it's a very evocative and a very good title in the sense that it's really um, signaling to its readers that we are going to be very much uh, set in a historical era. This is also her first historical novel, which I think is so funny, but I'm 53 years old. So like, yes, that is historical fiction. And, um, you know, I had a sense of this, but I wasn't, I, I I'm not sure that I, think of my birth year as this kind of seminal year in the history of the United States, but there was a lot going on, which we will, we will touch on. So this idea of this summer as being special in many ways is, um, it has to do with the country. And then also we have the expectation that it will be important for this family. Uh, Okay. So now we're going to, we're going to move on in. I really did enjoy the fact that there is this long, long list. Uh, of all of the books that she has published. I mean, how satisfying and how great that someone who is, you know, has this excellent combination of accessibility and also literary merit has able has been able to just really, um, you know, have this, this following that's really robust. It's, it's very, I think it's great. It's very exciting. Uh, I actually do have a, a signed copy, which I always think it's funny to have a signed copy. It doesn't, it's not particularly important to me. I like how she has a lot of these little peace symbols that, that come up as these little, um, you know, it's a motif that runs visually throughout the book. And uh, we have a great dedication in the beginning. It's actually kind of a very, um, you get the sense, this is someone who knows her way around a dedication. She says, this book is for the three people who were with me in the early morning hours of July 17th, 1969 those people of course being her mother and her twin brother but also her grandmother so she tells the story of um how she her her mother went into labor and her grandmother went you know ran all the red lights and got her somewhere and her father at the time i think was not able to be there very much like the the um the father in the novel himself so she and her brother uh were born on that morning with her mother and her grandmother which does speak to this real uh, this real sense of matriarchy that we have in the novel itself, the husbands are really absent. You know, you have, when they are all together on the Island, you really do have this absence of men and this kind of, I don't want to say a surplus of women because it's probably just the right amount, but you do have this, this nice sense of, of matriarchy and of powerful women who, you know, have a lot of control over their fate and their volition and their agency okay so now we are going to dive right into page three. This is a prologue so we're going to read prologue and then I'm also going to give you the, the the very first sentence of the first book I mean of the uh, once we're past this prologue. So Fortunate Sun is a song by Credence Clearwater Revival. Wait unless credence is different I'm just not a, I'm not a student of this music but it is um, it importantly, the, the line, one line of this is um, I am not going to try to sing it because that would be like, that would be not good. But it, it says some boys are born to raise that flag. It ain't me. It ain't me. And then there's lines about some some boys are born with a silver spoon. It ain't me. It ain't me. But what's really nice and, and actually to me, what signals this this kind of literary uh, thoroughness on the part of Hildebrand is that in the end, when Tiger is writing a letter that essentially acts as kind of an epilogue to the whole thing, he quotes this line um, that that he was born to raise the flag. So you have this this very, um, for someone who's writing a book a year, there really is a lot of attention paid to, you you know, to how the structure is working and to all of these different nuances and all of these different elements. she does a very good job using the the music throughout as chapter headings. Um, sometimes music is very frustrating for me because if I don't know the song, uh, it, it takes me out of the uh, out of the text. Suddenly, I'm like, I don't, I can't follow you here. I don't know what this music is all about. In this case, largely because I grew up listening to a lot of this music, um, I actually felt a like a lot of it is is sort of. Again, seminal enough in our history that a lot of this music from that Woodstock summer and um, you know from the folk revival, a lot of this music is very important and mainstream. But also, even if you didn't know the the name, if you didn't know that fortunate son was sung by Credence, and you didn't remember the lyrics. It's still um, the the titles that she chooses are very resonant, even if you don't know the songs themselves. Okay, now we're going to dive into the first paragraph. When the selective service notice comes for Tiger, Kate's first instinct is to throw it away. Surely this is every American mother's first instinct. Pretend it got lost in the mail, buy Tiger a few more weeks of freedom before the US Army sends another letter by which time this god-awful war in Vietnam might be over. Nixon has promised an end to it. There are peace talks going on right now in Paris. Le Duan will succumb to the allure of capitalism or Tu will be assassinated and someone with better sense will take over. Frankly, Kate doesn't care if Vietnam succumbs to the communists. She just wants to keep her son safe. So I found this such a compelling first paragraph in part because it does show that Ellen Hildebrand, you know, she says this herself, she read so many books about Vietnam. You get the sense that that she has this huge reservoir of of knowledge about Vietnam and we're just getting kind of bits and pieces of it, but it's very impressive. This was stuff, you know she's not just kind of name checking all of the things that we've already heard i don't know who some of these different people are um nixon i do in fact know but but it, it gives you this sense of someone who is really steeped in that moment so it, it it creates a sense of trust right from the very beginning that this is an author who has done her homework um we also have this excellent thing um when she's hoping that this god-awful war in vietnam will be over so we know, you know, there's a nice piece of dramatic irony here because, as readers, we know that in 1969 there are another six years to the war. So you get this sense of the desperation on the part of the mom, and this sense that that um, you know her hope is, you know, going to be dashed in in at least one way, which is simply that the war is not going to end that quickly. Okay, um, and then I want to read the very the first opening to sort of part one. So. The book is separated into three parts. Essentially, they're kind of two big parts. And then the third part functions almost like an epilogue. I did kind of wonder why she didn't have a prologue and an epilogue and then the the middle two chunks. But it, it functions, it's fine. It's fine to have it the way that it is. But I want to read the first part of part one uh, just so that we have a, a sense of both of them, of both of the starts, not just the prologue. Both sides now is the is the chapter heading for the for the first chapter. And this is a song by Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell becomes important later um, because she is in Woodstock. Not not like she's not like a huge player in the novel, but there is mention of that. Uh, okay. They're leaving for Nantucket on the third Monday in June, just as they always do. Jesse's maternal grandmother, Exalta Nichols, is a stickler for tradition. And this is especially true when it comes to the routines and rituals of summer. So there is this sense, and and, and we're gonna dive into this a little bit more carefully. In this idea of historical fiction, we have um, not only the historical fiction that we see in terms of like knowing about Vietnam and talking about the assassinations of um, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, but we also have this diction that I think she wields very, very well things like stickler, or um, I'm going to pull up a couple of other examples here. Um, You know, she talks at some point about the dinner hour about because someone comes to the door during the dinner hour. And I actually grew up in a household, probably lots of you did, where it was very rude if someone called on the telephone during the dinner hour, the dinner hour being kind of six to seven in the evening. So some of these terms, I mean, dinner hour to me it feels like it shouldn't be that sort of antiquated. And yet I realize it really is a term largely because of technology and texting and whatnot. Um, it's, it's a term that really isn't, it kind of just isn't something that is used anymore. Um, at some point she talks about bigotry so I think these days people don't talk about people being bigots and they don't talk about bigotry, they in fact talk about racism so, or, or intolerance or, or, or people, even prejudice is, is the word that you don't hear as much anymore. But bigotry, uh, you, you know, this is a word that, that does feel a little bit dated in a way that I think is great because it's giving us a real sense of her, uh, you know, of, of us as having sort of gone back in time at one point she talks about the country gone haywire which again is not i mean none of these are like actually antiquated but they do feel a little dated um at some point someone gets a kick out of something again that seems like something a little dated um dismay and and it's even the younger people that are talking about their dismay it's not it's not just the grandmother um we aren't going to spend much time talking about the names in the book but i do think um exalta is not in fact exalta's First name, she has some other first name, and I, I really I, I I wanted a little bit more backstory about that. But I also kind of loved the fact that Hildebrand is not going to satisfy that curiosity, and we just have to understand that it's probably some sort of Boston Brahmin blue blood kind of thing. Um, but but there is this sense of of exalta as being kind of um, you know this very elevated an actually very kind of Victorian era name. So I I think, um, and Blair and Kirby, a lot of the names feel very appropriate for kind of what they are, meaning that these are all these kind of snobby, um, you know, people who are summering in Nantucket and who come from this long line of people who belong, you know, to the Ore Club and and, and who have, you know, spent generations uh, summering on Nantucket. Okay. So in terms of historical fiction, we have this kind of uh, you know situating us historically, which is very important and very well done. Uh, and then we also have the diction, where everything feels a little bit dated. Uh, we have objects that are are. For me, this part was so fun. Um, the the thirteen year old is kind of you know, our young Jesse was as close. I, I was born in 1969. So some of this stuff, I mean, when I was 13, it was what, 1972. Oh my God, look at that math, it was 1982. So, um, but I still, we were wearing tree torns and um, we still had transistor radios. And th- there were there were a lot of things that she was talking about. There's a different kind of candy. There, there, there are several things that um, that really, for me, were very nostalgic. And you know the idea of this television as being new, and and Walter Cronkite being on the TV, um, that was one of those those ideas that that again sort of situate us very well in this summer in the late sixties. So she does a very good job to, uh, for example, with the televised coverage of the war and with Walter Cronkite, she not only is she touching on some of these historical events that are happening, but she's putting like a subtly different twist on them that I really like very much. So this idea of, um, you know, the war is being televised. I think famously, this is the first time that we are really seeing the war kind of up close and personal. And there's a lot of stuff about watching the news or not watching the news or sort of checking out or not checking out um, where information was concerned. Because of course, I I guess, you know, there's a list of casualties at the end of the evening. And I mean, it would be so horrific to have these, these images, you know, in, in the past, in the second world war or the first world war, it, it would have been so abstract because you would have just been reading about numbers. But, but for this family, not only has it become very personal because their son is there, but also because they're seeing images of what the jungle was like and what the violence looked like so she does a very good job, I think, of, of bringing um, you know, the, the sort of abstraction of what it would be like to have a son off in Vietnam and then, and then is really making it very specific. We also have that same sort of thing happening with Chappaquiddick. So this is famously um, when Teddy uh, uh, Kennedy, he, he killed a woman. I'm not sure that's exactly how we say it, but he, he was driving a car and it went off the road, off, I think off a bridge a small bridge, um, I'm remembering the movie that I did watch at one point, but as you all know, I have a really bad memory. But so Teddy Kennedy and Chappaquiddick, the, the way that she made that also feel very present and very real was it's it's kind of the beautiful thing about historical fiction. So not only is she kind of um, you know not not exactly sort of name checking it, she's she's actually bringing it to life because one of the characters in the book has kind of a bit part in uh, in that tragedy in Chappaquiddick. and and you do get a sense of how small Nantucket is, and even how small Martha's Vineyard is. So you would get a sense of of how um, you know an event that happened right in these small you know essentially small towns in America, you get a sense of, of the real impact of events like that, which would allow you to extrapolate how different events were impacting different parts of the United States. Um, also, the, there, there's some description of Woodstock that really, I liked that part of it. Um, I, I you know it's not i know i can picture jimmy hendrix playing and i can picture joan Baez playing and a couple of other things but and, and you know that sea of all of those people but her description of what happens um when Pick gets up there is is um it, it really does sort of bring to life actually some of the kind of the the chaos and disorder that was happening there so again one of the the best things i think that that uh, hildebrand does with this uh you know with this novel, which is historical fiction, is is making these things feel not only immediate, but really um, invests the characters in these events in a way that allows us to experience them in a slightly different way, which is one of the many, many uh, real gifts that we get from reading. Okay, so I'm going to leave it at that for our first chunk of our discussion of Ellen Hildebrand's excellent Uh, summer of 69, but join us for parts two and three to get an even fuller appreciation of the novel.